You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Good to be with you guys this morning. It is great to worship together, uh, to celebrate God and worship Him, which is what we're doing here this morning. He's worthy of our praise, and I uh, want you to feel and know right away that God is pleased that you set aside this time to worship Him and to hear from Him. So you've already, you've already won. God is pleased that you're here uh, on Zoom or here in person. Uh, we do have a few new people here this morning, so I'll introduce myself. My name is Justin. I serve as the associate pastor here at Midtown. Uh, we aim to be a church that welcomes people no matter what they think spiritually, no matter where they're coming from. And so we're really glad that you're here this morning visiting with us and look forward to meeting you as well. We're continuing our sermon series in uh, Ephesians. We've titled it uh, Family Matters. And in the book, in this specific part of the series, we've been looking at what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit and how that would affect various relationships that we have. And so we've talked about how Christians filled with the Spirit will relate to one another as singles and as married couples and as kids. And today, we're going to talk about the marketplace and how we would relate to one another in the workplace. But let me start by just asking you a question. What's the worst job that you ever had? Probably got, probably got a couple that come to mind. I know, I know what mine is. See, back in college, I was trying to find a way just to make a couple extra bucks as a poor college student. And so I took a job selling vacuums, and that really sucked. <laughs> catch up? You got to catch up? Sell, I wouldn't say that normally, but it's a joke. That's the only joke I'm telling this entire morning. So, so just laugh. Get it all out. The rest of the sermon is not funny. I, trust me. It's, it's really not. The passage isn't funny. That's it. But I really did. I, I had to sit there at a mall, and for four hours or sometimes eight-hour shifts, I would, I would sit there with a like, two-by-four piece of carpet and do my best to try to get people to come watch me spill juice on it and use this vacuum that would suck up the juice. And it, what was crazy is you weren't paid on commission. You were just paid for the hours that you were there. So I had no motivation to actually sell anything. And so I really looked at it like, I'm just going to stand here for four to eight hours and just collect my money and go back home. That was my worst job. Maybe you can think of one that was worse than that. When you think of your worst jobs, though, you often think about what is your worst job in the sense of what was the actual job, like what, what you had to do, like that's what made it bad. But if we're honest, uh, what's really wild is some of us, when we think about our worst job, we're actually, we actually would rather not think about the tasks that we had to perform, it was the people we had to work with, right? You ever had that? Because you could actually have a job that you love the actual task, the job itself, but man, if you're around the wrong type of people, it's going to destroy your enjoyment of the actual job, right? So you could have a boss that's rude, demanding, unkind, self-centered, arrogant. That's going to pretty much make things difficult, isn't it? Or you could be a supervisor of someone under you who's lazy or condescending or prideful or impatient, uh, fragile or uncorrectable. Either situation makes a big difference, doesn't it? Because you know that what really happens in the workplace, what makes it great is the relationships of the people that you're working with, and that's what creates a culture. And so today what we're going to look at is we're going to look at a passage in Ephesians that really gives a good vision for what it would look like to have healthy marketplace relationships in a way that creates a culture that actually was radically different and subversive to the culture of that day. That's the vision that's being cast here. And so we're going to talk about that by means of employment. But to do that, we're going to have to take one step because I'm going to read the passage here in a minute and it's going to look like, wait a second, (laughs) this feels uncomfortable because we're going to get there by the means of talking about masters and slaves. Those are the commands that we're given next in these series of relationships that we have. And so what I try to do is try to explain what that meant in that day and then try to bring it back at the end as to what it might mean for us today who don't have those kind of relationships, okay? So just to get out of the way, let's read the passage. It's Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. 
Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So passages like these rightfully uh, stir up some questions for us, both these and some of the Old Testament passages that speak about this very difficult topic of slavery. And they stir up things for us because we tend to think of slavery through the American lens and the history of our country rather than the time of that day. That's why sometimes you'll see slides or you'll see like a meme like this one. Could have been slavery or shellfish, and God chose shellfish, right? Sometimes people jokingly point to things like that because they're trying to demean what the Bible says, but they're really speaking out of turn about really knowing exactly the context that it was spoken into. And so first, before we kind of get to where we're going to talk about marketplace relationships, I just want to give you a few points that help you maybe understand this contextually. First is to say outright, number one, that... uh, Slavery is evil. Forced slavery is evil. Uh, Slavery based on race or gender or culture or caste system is sinful in God's eyes. Forced slavery and work in the sex trade or in that labor trade has always been evil in God's eyes. And it's condemned in the Old Testament, Exodus 21, New Testament, 1 Timothy 1. And it's important to start there to say that kind of slavery is evil. And to say that that kind of slavery was not created by God. That kind of slavery was created by man. And it shows literally the depth of the fall, the depth of our sinful nature, probably more than anything else we could actually point to, I would say. It's arguably the the most thing that we could point to to say, man, man is fallen, that we could actually treat someone as a slave and treat them without the dignity that they've been given by God. And this is not just a problem that was taking place um, in our country's history. This is a problem that's still taking place today. Uh, Even this week, I I served with Refugee Services of Texas, and I delivered food uh, to homes of people who had been trafficked here to Austin, Texas. So this is a current problem that we have, and we start by the very start saying that kind of slavery is completely evil. We all agree upon that. Second thing I would say is that in the context of the passage we're looking at today, God gave instruction to an existing condition, something that people created. And so when Paul is writing Ephesians, he's speaking about something that was created by people. It wasn't created by God. It wasn't endorsed by God. But God giving commandments is then speaking into it. And what he was doing when he was giving commandments that we find in the Old and the New Testaments was doing things to limit the ways that people would treat each other within these various conditions. Slavery was everywhere in the ancient world. It was embedded in the economic, the social institution of the times. And God didn't affirm it or endorse it, but he worked within the cultural framework of, the time, of those times to begin a much longer process of eliminating the world of slavery. And the third thing to say that will make us understand this passage better is that slavery in that culture is not the same as the slavery that we think of. When we think of slavery, we think of race-based slavery. We think of the Atlantic slave trade, the 17th, 18th centuries. We think about people today who are trafficked for sex. I just watched a news story this morning about how that, that, that's actually on the rise here, even in our country. We're talking about kidnapping. That's kidnapping in Scripture. And when people would want to use these passages to say that that is justifiable, like they did during our country's time, is completely evil and a misinterpretation of the days that this was being written to. And so it's not kidnapping, but the kind of slavery that they had in this New Testament time was a slavery that you actually 
put yourself into. It was a time when people would actually offer themselves as slaves to serve for a period of time or sometimes even the rest of their lives just for the absolute chance to get out of poverty. So you would sell yourself either for a period of time to pay off a debt or you, you would sell yourself as a servant to be in that system in that day just to provide for yourself. It was often like a life or death situation. And as hard as that for, is for us to understand, like that would be like, why would anyone ever do that? But our society is completely different. And so their cases, it was very, very different. And people sold themselves in an agreement by both parties. We think arranged marriages are weird. They did that at the same time. It was contracts that people made to help better society and give yourself a chance in a very uh, condition that was very much poverty. Keep in mind, as we think back on this passage, that God commanded the death penalty to those who kidnapped and sold people in the Old Testament. Slavery addressed in this passage is not that kind of slavery. In fact, it's 30, it was estimated that 30% of the population in this period were slaves. 30%. And if you think about it, that's why Paul would include it in this passage. He's talking about all these natural relationships. Here's how we relate to one another. We all submit to one another, have a reverence for Christ. Then we've got marriages. Then we've got uh, parenting, family. And now we're going to talk about the slave master thing. Why would that be something that he would include? It's because it was just the norm of that day. And 30% of the people themselves, it was just a common relationship that they had. That's why it's addressed in that order. But remember that it's radically different. That's why the commands that he gives here to the masters and to the slaves is radically different to what the people would have been practicing in that day. So that's a little context for how we should look at this lens and then we see these terms, slavery and master. Think of it more like boss and servant. That's really the, the thing that he was speaking into, a very common relationship in those days. Now let's talk about, that was kind of the kingdom of Rome, slavery. Now let's talk about what the New Testament and the way that it was pushing toward what to do in relation to slave and master relationships. So we're going to get back to Ephesians 6, but what I want to do first is just look at the whole, a couple other parts of the New Testament that actually kind of give us a, a lens into, into what the New Testament, what the new Christians were doing with this whole slave-master relationship. First thing to do is you got to remember, I'm going to say, take us back, but remember when we did Ephesians a couple times throughout this book, we actually took you back to Acts chapter 19 which is where the Ephesian church revival began. It was a crazy revival. In fact, there's that really famous verse in Acts 19.10 that says, all this took place, meaning Paul's missionary friends and their, all the stuff that they did, it took place over two years that everyone in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Like crazy. And if you remember, we told you that Ephesus was like a metropolis. Like for, it was a big uh, economic uh, cult, uh, point in, within that culture. It was also a big religious point. So people were coming and they were all hearing about Jesus. And all those people that came to faith in the revival you read about in Acts 19... All types of people were coming to faith. So servants were coming to faith. Masters were coming to faith. Rich people, poor people, Jewish people, Greek people. And this was the, the, the time that they're speaking into. And now you've got people from all these different socio and economic statuses within the culture all coming to faith and beginning to see themselves as one spiritual family. And this is really the new vision that starts to get created as you see the New Testament progress, that there's, we're one family and there's no longer these hierarchies in power. And that's the amazing thing that this text is going to teach about, teach about. One thing that you see, you can see it, they were actually called to remain where they were. Paul's, Paul's overall instruction throughout the New Testament was not that if you were a slave, try to, try to get out or do something. If you're a master, you should need to not be a master. Just stay where you were. You read about this in 1 Corinthians 7. It says this, each person should remain in the situation they were when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. 
you do not become slave of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person is responsible to God to remain in the situation they were in when they were called. And so what he was trying to do real early on, and, and as people are starting to come to faith from different backgrounds and places, he said, the best thing is just to stay where you are. And if you were a slave, be a light as a slave where you are. And if you were a master, be a light as a master. But the relationship we're going to see is going to change in the way that they were to relate to one another. And primarily, you see here, they were called not just to even see themselves as slave or free. They were called to see themselves as bought by Christ. You were bought at a price. You, you're not your own. And if you're a slave, consider yourself free in Christ. And if you're free, you need to start looking at yourself as you're a slave of God. It was changing the relationships. Second thing that you see as you read the New Testament was a call to move away from slavery. And you see this really primarily in the letter to Philemon. If you're familiar with that small book of the Bible, Philemon uh, was a master. And he had a slave, Onesimus, that ran away. And the slave comes to faith. And Paul now is sending Onesimus back to Philemon with this letter to give Philemon about instructions about how he is to treat his runaway servant. And you read just a couple verses here in verse 15. Paul says, perhaps the reason he, this is Onesimus, perhaps the reason Onesimus says it was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me and even dearer to you, both a fellow man and a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. See, in there, Paul doesn't like outright call for an end of the slave-master relationship, but you can see he's telling Philemon, suggesting very strongly, this is what I would prefer you do. Welcome him back and treat him as a brother in Christ. He might could still serve, but don't treat him less than. Don't punish him. In fact, I will step up and pay anything that has happened. That was the posture of Paul in this particular relationship. A third thing that you find as you read through the New Testament in regard to this slave-master relationship is a call to a new identity. You see this most clearly in Galatians 3, 26 through 28. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For you are all baptized into Christ. You've closed yourself in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ. And so all the socioeconomic structures, all the power hierarchies of the day, all the systems affected by race or gender, are wiped away in Christ, that we have a new identity. And the New Testament is giving us a picture that we're supposed to see ourselves as one spiritual family, no matter where we are in status and the, in the culture, we're one family, we're brothers, we're sisters in Christ, which is why this whole series we kicked off with, with Ephesians uh, 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that we all, as a family of believers, submit our lives to one another. That's the radical thing about God's kingdom vision. And this vision radically changed the hierarchies, hierarchies of that day, which is why the instructions that we've been going through in Ephesians 5 and 6 are really subversive to, to the culture. They're having people have these relationships that are submitted to one another that are very different from what would happen in that day. And it laid forth a servant-master relationship with the instructions that we find here in Ephesians 6. Ultimately, is an instruction to mutually love and respect one another. So that's the, that's the groundwork for the overall New Testament vision in the context of where these verses go. So let's now look at each of them, and then I'll try to bring it back to talk about what this might mean for us today. Ephesians 6, we're going to look first at the servant. What were the commands to the servant? Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, because you know the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether slave or free. 
Three sentences there I like to sum up in one sentence, which would be, do the work with the right heart as unto the Lord. Do the work with the right heart as unto the Lord. The first command is just do the work. Paul uses the word obey or serve. In this context, he just says, do what you've been asked to do. If you've got a boss or a master and he's telling you to do something, the first thing is just to be faithful. Do the work. Do the things that you've been assigned to do. Next command is a little bit more difficult because it's not just do it, it's do it with the right heart. He uses the words here to do it, uh, to obey with respect, with fear, with sincerity, with wholeheartedness. Like not just do it, but as a Christian, the way that you obey or the way you do and you fulfill your work and the things that a boss would give you is to do it unto God, to, to do it with a right heart, do it for their good. Do it not with a bad attitude, but a good attitude. And the third command is to do it unto the Lord. So do the work. Do it with the right heart. And this is the most freeing part. Do it as unto the Lord. You see it so clearly in those, these commands. He's saying it's really not that you're a slave to this boss, to this master. In fact, you do all your work as unto the Lord because you recognize that he is really your master. He's the one that we would serve. And so when we do our work unto God, it changes everything in the way that we see things. It changes the way that we think about who's getting the glory or who we're serving. It's God that we're serving while we're doing the work. And you can see how this would radically affect the way that servants uh, did their work and how they related their masters. Paul's clearly telling us as servants to, to do the work for God and not for man. Do it not just when their eyes are on us, but to do it faithfully whether their eyes are on us or not because we're doing our work unto God with hopes of pleasing him and the promise of rewards for being faithful for the things that we do. That's what was said to servants. Do the work with the right heart as unto the Lord. But for the masters, he says this, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since they know that since uh, you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. These two sentences I like to sum up that he says, treat the servants as you want them to treat you and as God treated you. It starts with a very simple command, which is radical to the day to say in the same way. You're supposed to treat them in the same way. So everything that we said about servants, about how you're to respect and, and care for and do the work, you know what? That applies back to you the same way. You're to treat the slaves with the same respect, the same dignity, the same worth, just as you would want to be treated. And not only that, you're supposed to think of it in terms of you are a slave to God, and so you're going to be accountable to God for how you treat people, how you treat the people that work under you. And you have a master, and you're under authority as well. And because of that, you're glad that you have a master in heaven that's gracious and patient with you, don't you? Now, the same way that God treats you, now you need to treat other people because it says here with God, there's no favoritism. God judges rightly and justly. He's going to hold you accountable with the same fear and reverence that they served. You now do the same in response. So masters, treat them as you want them to, to treat you and as God has treated you. Now let's talk just a moment about how radical and subversive this would be. That even though they entered into servanthood on their own and it was an arranged agreement, you still in that culture didn't mean that you're going to be treated well. <laughs> so they weren't forced into it. They opted into it. But even if they opted into it to pay off debts, to, to get free from some poverty, or to even give themselves a hope with their family, they still abused it. They still treated people poorly. And so what Paul is saying here now, so you're going to go into these relationships as Christians now, we're not going to do those things. You would expect that a master would be harsh. You would expect that servants would disrespect their masters or just do just enough work to get by. But this master-servant relationship that would be normal is now being turned on its head because there's this mutual submission to one another, looking out for each other's interests above each other. 
And really, I think there were two truths. There were two truths that mainly drove this change in the way this relationship would work. The first is that they began to really see each other as, as brothers and sisters. Those are kind of the New Testament verses we looked at before we got to the Ephesian one, that this radical idea that there's no longer these power hierarchies because we're one spiritual family and we treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter where we come from. That was radical difference in the way that people began to see themselves within the hierarchies of their culture. And then the other beliefs was that they began to see themselves as slaves to God. Because now that they had an awareness of who God was, they began to see all of life as stewardship. And God has given me this position, and I'm going to be accountable to him, and I'm going to do my work unto him for his glory. And I'm going to try to use what I do to point other people to God. And that radically changed the way you do your job. That changes the way that you have this relationship, because now you're all on an equal playing field, knowing you're really accountable to God. He's our master. And it's those two beliefs that radically changed the way this relationship was going to be worked out. And the Christians started living differently than the rest of the world. And that does bring me to an important side note before I share what this means for us maybe today, is to take note that Paul is writing this to Christians. So I said that during this revival in Acts chapter 19, people from all different, faith, different walks of life were coming to faith, and he's writing this letter specifically to Christians to how they're to treat one another. And in that culture, there probably were a lot of Christians that worked under other Christians in these relationships. And I know in our culture, it's, it could be vastly different. I would bet venture to say that most of you don't work for a godly boss who's going about life in this perspective. Well, there are commands in Scripture that relate to that as well. In the New Testament, you could read in 1 Peter 2 and in Titus 2, there's commands about how servants with ungodly or unbelieving masters should still serve with the same respect. You'll see all the same commands. It's just it's do the work with the right heart unto God. Same commands, but there's an extra motivation that you would read in these scriptures that talk about how you're supposed to do in a relationship with someone who doesn't believe, the extra motivation is so that you can be a witness to them. That your life is supposed to be a witness because again, you're thinking about things beyond earth. You're thinking about your influence on that person so there's extra motivation. First Timothy uh, chapter six, in fact, Paul's writing, giving Timothy some instruction of his, in his day. And he says, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they're fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them and fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. That was the kind of relationship that they wanted. And really, when, it, when you were functioning that way, treating each other the way that he's commanding, what it does is the purpose was so that God's name and our teaching may not be defamed, may not be slandered. We have a chance to witness, and that was what was taking place, and it's probably part of why the, why the, the church was succeeding in Ephesus. They were seeing these changes in these relationships, and it, and it stood out to people as a testimony to the gospel and what it did and how people started to see each other, not within power hierarchies, but as in spiritual family. The same is true, though. This was talking about believers of believers. The same is true when it comes to your relationships with unbelieving bosses. In Titus 2, you read it this way. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them. Do not steal from them, but show that you can be fully trusted, so that in every way, here's the motive, in every way, you'll make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. So even when our masters or our bosses aren't following Jesus, we can become a shining testimony of God's grace in our lives. Do you see how those two would work out? When people start to see each other as brothers and not within the hierarchy structures that are today, when they begin to see themselves as actually accountable to God and not to people, it changed things. And it was beautiful, and the world would look on it and say, wow, that's different. That's what it looked like in their day. 
Let me just try to translate this a little bit to Austin, Texas. We could maybe call this slavery or servanthood in Austin, Texas. And while we don't have even the kind of slavery that they had in their day, we don't sell ourselves, you know, some of you actually probably argue, you're like, yes, I am a slave to my boss. <laughs> like, this is, that was my second joke. That's the last one. But like, yes, you might be a slave to your boss. You might say, yes, I am an indentured servant. I have put my body out there for hire. Some of you might feel like that with your jobs. But we know in our day, we have lots of different choices. And so it's very different from the kind of relationship that we're talking about there. But it's still applicable in comparison if we want to compare it to the marketplace. If we want to compare it to the places where we work that can be applied. So I would guess that almost all of us have bosses, someone that we report to, and I guess a number of us have, have people who report to us. You might not be the boss, but you've got people under you that report to you. And each of us, no matter where we work, I guess maybe with a few rare, rare exceptions, have relationships, peers. And this is where we can live this out. So whether you're Christians and you work for another Christian and the way that you treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ in the, in the marketplace gives glory to God, or whether you work for an unbelieving boss and the way that you witness is by treating them in the same way you would a believing boss. This is the opportunity that we have and the workplaces uh, that practice this kind of love and respect are the best places to work, whether Christians are there or not. And so for us as believers, whether we have Christians over us or Christians under us in the workplace, the same commands would be true for us. Do the work with the right heart as unto God. Do the work. So whatever it is that whoever's over you that you're reporting to gives you work to do, be faithful. Like, be faithful with it. Work hard. Do what you're supposed to do. Make deadlines. Honor God with the way that you work. And do it with the right heart. Pray that your heart would be in the right place, that you would want the well-being of your company, the well-being of the people in your company. You're doing it not begrudgingly, but asking God to change your heart and give you a, a right perspective as you work. And then most importantly, do it unto the Lord. Like, do your work for the purpose of saying, all the things that I'm doing in my life, they matter to God. I'm doing things for his glory and not man's approval. I'm not trying to please man. I'm trying to please God with how I work faithfully. And for those of us who might be in a place of being a boss or have people that are reporting to us, the same would be true. Treat people as you would want to be treated. Treat employees or those who report to you with dignity, with respect. Be kind. Be patient with them. Seek their best interests. Give them the help that they need. Try to make them succeed. And we should treat people also the way that God has treated us. We should recognize that we, as having people under us, God is our ultimate authority. And we should live with a humility that God is the one that we're accountable to. And we have a God that's been gracious and loving and patient with us. And so we treat people the same way that God has treated us. Now, I know that our economy and our marketplace is vastly different. I think even in this room right now, I could definitely point to all kinds of different career paths that you guys are, you guys are on. So whether it's marketing or sales or law or education, a nonprofit, medical, tech, art, whatever thing you're involved with, in almost every case, you work with people. And so the way you live out this passage is to treat people well and do it with a mind to make God's name great. Do it with a mind to be a witness for him that others might see the way that you treat people. And you could actually be the one that could change the culture of your workplace by the way that you treat people. I know some of you might work for like giant, giant organizations and you're thinking, yeah, right, I can't change the culture. This is kind of a, a top-down culture, but I bet you can change the culture on your team, whatever group that you're a part of, whatever that looks like for you. You're the one that can change the culture and show people what it looks like to be a Christian and treat people well in the workplace. When I think of a, a person like this, 
uh, I think about my friend Tony Boudet. He's the CEO of University Federal Credit Union. Um, got to know him over the last couple of years and heard him speak about the, the way that he's created culture. And I just thought I'd, I'd share his example uh, with you guys today as a master who really serves more like a servant in his workplace, even though he is the CEO. Um, I called him this week just to get, uh, get acquainted again with his practices. And he told me that he views his number one job, his number one job, he says, is the great command. He says, my number one job as an employer is to love God and love people. He says, that's the number one command, and it's the number one command for all of my life, including my work life. And so he says that he treats all 800 of the people on his payroll as if they are his spiritual family. And he's going to care for them and care for them, not just them. He actually considers himself under God's authority of not just them, but their families. So he says, really, I feel, I feel like I've got three or 4,000 people that I'm charged with, that God's given me stewardship of to care for. And I'm going to love and treat people like persons. And if you were to walk into his office, he's got this giant office, you know, thing, a board right in their office that says relationships are all there is. And he lives by that. He's created that culture. And with a huge company of that many employees, you know what he does? Within the first 30 days, if you're employed there, within the first 30 days, you get a 90-minute sit-down, just you and Tony. And during that time, he just wants to know you. He wants to know about your family. He wants to know what, what, you're, uh, what you want to get out of this job. And then he also wants to walk you through this important statement. The relationships are all there is. And how are you going to live that out in your position within the workplace? 90 minutes within the first 30 days with a CEO, every single one of them. Another thing Tony does is he says every morning, the first thing he does in part of his quiet time is he opens up his calendar and he looks at what he has to do that day and he prays for every single person that he knows he's meeting that day. Every single meeting, every single thing, and he asks God, not just to pray for them, he asks God, God, what do you want me to bring? Is there anything that, that you've tasked me with bringing uh, to the table during this meeting? He says if he didn't do that, he would just float like the wind with every different thing that happened, but he's intentional with every moment and every meeting of his day. And what I like most about Tony is this does not come natural to him. <laughs> he actually started his career and was not like this. But as a Christian that wanted to grow in his faith and learn how to live out Ephesians 6 principles, he was blessed with another man who took him under his wing and said, Tony, here's an area where you need to work on. And he started grooming him and teaching him how he could create that culture. And Tony still is getting groomed to get it today. Um, I, I actually have his baseball tickets, <laughs> which is nice, nice, uh, nice little side note. Um, but I sat next to his coach, at a, his, his life coach, at, the, at a baseball game just a few weeks ago. This man is still seeking others to help him and help him grow and build the kind of culture that embodies Ephesians 6. So I know in our day, uh, there's still demanding employees, and I mean demanding employers, and there's employees that are very disrespectful. And in our day, everyone's looking for their own interest in the rat race, try to get ahead, try to turn a profit, try to advance a career, secure a future, make a name for themselves. They'll do whatever they have to do uh, to whomever they have to do to get ahead, even if it means putting someone down. But how different could it be if we treated coworkers and employees and our bosses as brothers and sisters? How different would it be if we all did our work as unto the Lord, knowing that we're going to be accountable to him? How would that shape the, the way that we can be a light and a blessing to our workplace. Let's cut against the grain of our culture and let's foster those kind of relationships and subvert all the power hierarchies by the way that we treat one another. May God give us grace to do so. Let me pray for us. God, we do want to be in these types of relationships, really with everyone, but in this case, we're talking about our, our 
workplace. Give us favor. Pray if there's any uh, conviction that's happened this morning, thinking about just ways that we've, we've treated people, our relationships with coworkers, that you would bring that conviction and bring real, real repentance that we can be a light and live differently. We pray, God, that we would treat each other as brothers and sisters. Um, even those outside the faith, we treat them as we would treat our brothers and sisters. We pray that we would see ourselves as accountable to you, uh, our God, and do our work unto you. Use us as we are the church gathered here on a Sunday morning. We know that we're the church scattered uh, Monday through Friday, uh, 40 plus hours a week. As the church scattered, God, use us to bring the culture that honors you in the city of Austin that we love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.